Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Today we are joined by Colin Hoy, who is a friend of mine. We've known each other since 2007 or 2008, something like that. We, we both went to school in Arkansas, and Colin has, has now gone on to become a PhD candidate in neuroscience. So fascinating stuff, very relevant to emerging trends and emerging technology. So Colin, why don't you start off by just giving us a one or two minute overview of your research and what's brought you to where you're at now? Yeah, great. Thanks, Trent. Uh, it's really nice to be here. Uh, so I'm a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley in Bob Knight's lab, working in what we call cognitive neuroscience, which is essentially asking the same kind of questions that a psychologist might ask, but with brain recordings and trying to figure out the neural mechanisms of those questions. And so the I have a range of projects. Uh, the main ones uh, would fall under the umbrella of what you might call cognitive control, which is sort of the group of processes by which you might try and choose actions in order to achieve your goals. And then the control loop might be something like, well, how do I choose this action? So some decision making, uh, and then the feedback component of learning to close that loop and improve from your mistakes and do better the next time. And so I have several projects looking at the various pieces involved in that. Uh, and then I have a few others that are looking at um, things like emotion in the brain and how those different categories of emotion might be represented. And the key kind of uh, fun part for my job is that I get to study all of this with direct brain recordings from neurosurgical patients that are essentially having brain surgery to localize the source of their seizures. Uh, and then while they're sitting around in the hospital waiting to have enough seizures, they can do the clinical part, will run these sort of cognitive psychology tasks with the direct access to those brain recordings, which are really rare and uh, very helpful data to figure out these neural mechanisms. Oh, that's fantastic. It, it sounds kind of like an update of the early lesion studies they did on rats where you would damage a part of the brain and say, well, what can't this thing do now? Yeah. And that's a, it's very nice to be able to see the normal brain in action, right? Because a lot of these epilepsy patients, you know, I work with material science engineers or doctors and lawyers who just have a seizure every once in a while. So that's a lot nicer to see how the brain works uh, in healthy functioning tissue, as opposed to, you know, knocking out a region via lesion and seeing how the behavior changes which would be something that has some ethical difficulties. So, Definitely. so I wanted to, to take a step back and just ask you what it is that drew you to the study of the brain. What is it that fascinates about you, fascinates it about you? And why did you choose to study this? Yeah, for me, I think it's a very common, uh, source of interest that all of us share, um, which is how are we having this conversation? You know, we have, you know, these couple pounds of flesh in our head in between our ears <laughs> And somehow we're producing all these complex thoughts and emotions and feelings and communicating with each other. So, you know, it was initially just, how does any of that happen? You know? Um, and I think that's what uh, is special about neuroscience is that everybody has this sort of intuitive link, you know, you know what's going on in your own mind and neuroscience is just the process of figuring out how your brain does that. And so I think a lot of neuroscientists share that motivation and then it's just a matter of figuring out, Oh, well, Turns out there's a lot of stuff going on in the mind and a lot of stuff going on in the brain. And so the trick is slicing off some piece of that problem and then trying to figure it out. Fantastic. So there, there seems to be um, a lot of people that are they're looking, how do, I, how do I get a better brain? You know, just, you know, how, how do I cue myself up for these uh, challenging days that we've been having? And so how do I, uh, you know, psych myself up? Is there some drugs I can take? Is there something I can put on my head? Is there... Uh, how do I get a better night's sleep? All of these things, people are looking for some advantage. Um, you know, it's, it, everybody has this secret desire to be smarter than the average person out there. And uh, so you have all the secrets now, right? <laughs> uh, yes, but I'll only let you in on a couple of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's a natural, you know, everybody wants to get better. And that's the whole process of learning. You know, it's not just as a kid, but it goes on as an adult. 
even into, you know, your elderly years. And so uh, I think that it's important to realize that uh, there's so many different cognitive capacities that we have, and they're all interacting in very complex ways, depending on what we're doing and how we're doing it. And so trying to figure out how you'd improve any one of those is difficult in its own right, uh, but breaking out that process. And so, you know, you might think about that as your mind is good at language, but it's also good at decision-making or attention or memory. Each one of these capacities has different circuits in the brain that operate at multiple levels. Uh, And by that, I mean, you know, are you going to try and get some gene therapy or are you going to try and get some stimulator that's going to be inside a brain circuit? Or are you going to just be able to try and put something on your scalp that uh, gives you a little bit of a heads up on when you're getting drowsy? And so there are many different levels at which you can intervene in the brain and many different cognitive processes that you could try and affect to improve whatever your specific ailment is. And so uh, it's a really complicated space on the mental side and the brain side. And uh, trying to figure out what exactly your problem is, is going to have a lot to do with what, how you might improve it. So, so I get into a lot of talks on the future of education. And um, the, we've been speculating on if, if all the the things were done correctly and uh, that we might be able to learn, you know, two times faster, four times faster, uh, maybe even more. So uh, is that indeed possible? And uh, because I have a lot of people who throw cold water on that right away. Right. Yeah. I think uh, I want to say that you can definitely use neuroscience to improve learning, uh, but it's not going to be simple and it's probably only going to work in limited domains. And so by that, I mean that uh, you might not be able to sort of uh, just zap a certain piece of information into your brain. That's, you know, science fiction at this point and very far off, if ever possible. Um, But you might be able to get some biomarkers of attention. And then if you could provide some neurofeedback in real time when your attention is fluctuating, then you could let somebody know, hey, your attention's flagging right now. You're probably not going to be learning very well, right? And so if we have some brain rhythms that we can associate with good learning states, uh, then maybe we can let you know where you are relative to the best learning states. And, you know, you could at least avoid periods where, you know, realistically, I'm out of it. I'm not going to learn a darn thing right now. Yeah. So so some of the things I talk about is this idea of um, uh, an AI teacher bot that actually becomes intimately involved with you, that it's interacting with you all day long and queuing up uh, courses and learning modules and things like that, knowing exactly what state of mind you're in at any given moment in time. And then uh, uh, so it, it cues in on what you're interested in, what your your current skills are, where you're deficient and how to bring you up to speed on that. Um, is that indeed possible in your way of thinking? I think that there are versions of that that would work. And so, again, it probably depends on exactly what you're trying to learn. And again, the neuroscience mechanisms of learning are different for different types of skills. So motor learning for shooting a free throw or getting your putt down are going to involve very different brain circuits than episodic memory, which involves sort of declarative facts or your personal memories. And so uh, depending on exactly what you're trying to learn, that will change the brain circuit. And the mechanisms of that brain circuit would change how you would try and intervene there. And so uh, I think that probably right now, we're going to get more leverage out of putting you in an optimal learning state rather than trying to manipulate your brain activity directly, right? And so you might be able to say, okay, uh, we can show that you're going to learn this pretty well right now. But turns out that after about an hour, you're dropping off and we should stop and take a break. Right. So right. I think, you know, you can optimize the learning process, uh, maybe using some markers of various brain states. Um, but, you know, reading and writing information into the brain directly, I think is going to be harder. So maybe more curating the learning process is a more realistic goal. Okay. So you talked about possibly stimulating regions of the brain associated with different kinds of activities and, One attempt to do this that's made headlines recently is Elon Musk's company Neuralink. And I have friends who say that it will never be possible to transmit thoughts between brains using a technology like Neuralink. So let's call that zero on the optimism scale. 
And then Elon Musk went on Joe Rogan's podcast and said that in five years, we won't even be using language anymore. <laughs> Call that a 10 on the optimism scale. Where do you fall on this scale? And what do you think are the pros and cons of this approach to neurotechnology? Right. So uh, zero to 10 is hard for me because I have this uh, annoying scientist knack where I want to sort of qualify a lot of things. And so I think it depends on the context. Um, and again, the brain regions and types of information is going to determine your answer here. So simple information, like just sensory inputs, you know, putting a sound wave into somebody's brain, you can already sort of do that with cochlear implants. And in fact, there's now a visual prosthetic that came out of Baylor where they're putting a grid of electrodes on your visual cortex and stimulating in ways that will give blind people the ability to see shapes and locations. So writing in some sensory information, just basic sensory stuff, that's definitely possible. And the same thing's true for simple outputs, motor outputs. The brain-machine interface field is now getting some very nice results where you can read out whatever the motor cortex is trying to do, even if that someone's quadriplegic and those signals can't make it down their spinal cord to whatever uh, muscles are supposed to act, but hook that up to a robotic arm and I saw a very great video from Caltech where they were able to give this uh, quadriplegic man the ability to pick up and drink his own beer. That was what he wanted, and that was very possible. And so, uh, you know, that kind of thing, which would be simpler information, inputs and outputs from a sensory or a motor side, I think those are very possible. They're already happening, and neurotechnology advances are moving very quickly and will improve our ability to do so. But the specific information of, I'm thinking of an abstract thought, freedom. I want to transmit the thought freedom to you. We have no idea how the brain is possibly encoding abstract concepts, and we're very far off from that kind of information. So mm -hmm. again, that kind of thing, very much science fiction at this point. So I'm not sure where that puts me zero to 10, but I think contextually, it could be very high or very low. That's a standard science scientist answer. We, we don't really know. <laughs> we don't really know where you stand. So let, let's use this as a springboard to get into some of the neurotech because it's, it's really sexy and, and there's science fiction that comes out every year talking about these sorts of things. And of course, we, we all know that once we can improve the way that we think or at, transmit these abstract concepts, then an entire new really era of, of humanity opens up. So yeah, let, let, let's use this to talk about some of, of the promise of that field. You do invasive you use invasive techniques for, for your studies. So there are also non-invasive techniques. So can you explain sort of the difference between those and, and what are the advantages of, of using an invasive versus a non-invasive technique? Right. Uh, so a lot of this is going to boil down to what kind of access to the brain signals you have and what kind of resolution there is. So non-invasive techniques, um, traditionally scalp electroencephalography, which is EEG colloquially, is just putting an electrode on your scalp and the electrical signals in your brain uh, can aggregate in such strong ways for very large activity that you'll be able to sense it right there on the scalp. And scalp EEG has been very useful. Uh, and functional MRI, which is essentially looking at oxygen level changes in the brain. So if one brain region, you know, you move your arm, the motor cortex uses up the oxygen resources, and then there's a flood of new oxygen. And so fMRI is another common non-invasive technique uh, the differences are going to be in resolution, both in space and time. So EEG is electrical activity, which moves very quickly, but having those electrodes on your scalp, you can't tell very well where in the brain it's coming from. So you have temporal resolution, but not spatial. Whereas fMRI, you can see very nicely where in the brain is using those oxygen resources, but because it's not directly neural activity, it's only the resources flooding in afterwards, it's very poor temporal resolution versus invasive neurotechnology. If I put an electrode in your brain, then the local activity there is very spatially confined and I get the electrical time resolution. And so I have both high spatial and temporal resolution. And that makes all the difference in being able to co-localize both in space and time and uh, be able to see different frequency patterns in the brain as well. We know that uh, different wavelengths, different frequencies open up different communication channels between brain regions, which is you hear something like theta or alpha. These are terms that refer to how fast a brain communication frequency is. And those are faster than fMRI could pick up. And so if you're invasive, you get much more information about both 
where in the brain, when it's happening, and maybe at what frequencies patterns of brain activity are involving. And so that resolution makes it much more possible to see the brain as it's actually working. So it's, it's sort of a granularity issue with, with something like a scalp EEG. You see the lights flashing in the, the distance, but it's really hard to make out anything at a finer mm -hmm. scale than that. Right. So, uh, and again, this is really going to matter kind of what are, what cognitive capacities are we talking about? A memory of a specific person, you know, there's a famous paper where they were looking for the quote unquote Jennifer Aniston cells in the hippocampus, which is one of the main uh, memory regions in the brain. And they were finding individual neurons were, would fire for specifically Jennifer Aniston, meaning uh, if you showed a picture of her, if you showed her word, her name printed, or if you played her, her name out loud, audio. And so it's the concept of Jennifer Aniston is represented by a single cell or probably a very small subset of cells. That shows you that, that if you're interested in the memory of a specific concept, you're going to need very high resolution in space and time to be able to pick that signal up. Whereas if you're just looking for when am I clenching my fist, right? That's a much bigger chunk of the motor part of the brain. And it's just a bigger, larger signal. And so you could probably pick that up just with a non-invasive technique. So I'm pretty interested in this Jennifer Aniston subset of neurons now. I had never heard of this. So it seems to harken back to some of the comments you made earlier about encoding in the brain. So do right. you happen to know, did, did they look for activation of the same neurons when the word woman was written out or actress was written, written out? Cause I mean, obviously right. there can't be a neuron for every person, you know, so th these neurons have to be used in, in different organizational circuits. So did they test that at all? Yeah, there's a lot of caveats to this experiment, and it gets misinterpreted a lot of the time. Um, so uh, <laughs> the main finding there was essentially that there were, quote unquote, concept cells. A single cell will respond to something that's semantically invariant, uh, which means that essentially the important part was that whenever you showed a picture of Jennifer Aniston, so visual input, or played her name out loud, so an auditory input, it was still firing for that concept, but it wouldn't fire for Brad Pitt or it wouldn't fire for the word actress, right? So it was specific to that concept. That was the important finding. The people kind of ran away with it and they said, oh, well, this could be the grandmother cell concept, which means that if your concept of your grandmother is represented by one cell in the brain, what happens if that cell dies? Do you not remember your grandmother anymore? Presumably not. And yeah, that, but that's not the case, right? That was an over-interpretation. And that's probably a limit of, in humans, we were only able to record from a couple cells at a time. So we could pick up this Jennifer Aniston cell, but there could have been, say, a few dozen more cells also responding to Jennifer Aniston specifically, but it wasn't a single cell kind of coding scheme. I wish so, I would have known uh, this a, a long time ago. I could have used the Jennifer Aniston excuse. Yeah, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't learn organic chemistry because Jennifer Aniston kept getting in the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is actually another caveat that is less well known about that experiment, which is it was conducted at UCLA and the patient they were recording that neuron from knew Jennifer Aniston personally. Uh -huh. Interesting. And so... There's a key difference between, uh, you know, oh, my favorite actress. Uh, and essentially that uh, difference is that she's very familiar with that person, which means she probably had more cells that were encoding that particular concept or person or things related to that person. Whereas, you know, if somebody barely knows who Jennifer Aniston is, they probably have very few cells that are going to encode the concept of Jennifer Aniston. And so, you know, people get carried away. Uh, with the interpretation there, not realizing that that was somebody that was very important to the patient. Interesting. So given that you work with these invasive techniques, could you tell us a little bit about the state of the art? So I, I know that for a long time, brain implants were very tricky because you're, you're putting aluminum and plastic into a wet organic substrate and it doesn't tend to respond very well. So has that advanced considerably? Are, are we going to see the day when it's relatively common to have brain implants? Definitely. Um, I think that uh, the safety of neural implants is always going to be a big question, right? And so if you look at the complications of brain surgery, um, it can be anywhere, you know, three to 7% of cases are going to have some kind of complication. And that could be that, you know, when you're implanting the electrode, you nick a vein 
and there's some bleeding, which can be dangerous, or maybe an infection after you've implanted it after a while. Um, so, you know, you need to take brain surgery very seriously. And that's why, you know, so if you look outside of clinical conditions that would have a medical indication for neurosurgery, one of the earliest adopters would probably be gamers, right? If they could just get an electrode in their motor cortex and re-shave off a couple milliseconds of their reaction time to that click or that button press, they would be ecstatic, right? That's going <coughs> to win them money in tournaments. But it's not a medical necessity, right? So you do need to keep in mind that these invasive techniques are dangerous. You know, there's risk involved. And, you know, they're pretty well tolerated these days. Um, but that's always going to be a caveat. So, so Colin, when, when you saw the Neuralink demonstration um, and you see these little fibers going into the person's brain, um, step us through what you were thinking when you were watching that. Uh, I mean, were you cringing? I mean, were you clawing your eyes out saying this, this is all fake? Or It, it depends I, on the context. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so Neuralink, my general take is that their engineering is important, but their neuroscience is a little lacking. And I think that's typical of sort of Silicon Valley tech innovators trying to come into the neuroscience space. Um, and so the really cool things that Neuralink is doing, the sewing machine that they've come out with. So let's talk a little bit about what these implants actually are. They typically come in a couple of varieties. One is a depth electrode that looks a little bit like a pencil, except it's maybe a millimeter thick. And they will put a little tiny burr hole, maybe a couple millimeters wide in your skull. And then they can just use a stereotactic frame, which gives you kind of an X, Y, Z coordinate system. And they'll drop that sort of thin, long electrode down to a target that they're trying to record from. And so this, as you said, depends on the material, right? If it's something like metal, plastic, something like that, the brain doesn't like that very much, right? Uh, and so uh, the sewing machine that Neuralink has come up with doesn't have these sort of millimeter wide, sort of thickish uh, implants. It has a little tiny thread with little electrodes embedded on it. And so that means that the sewing machine just goes whoop, 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 and implants several of those threads, which are much smaller, meaning they're better tolerated by the brain and the brain's not going to swell up. It's not going to object. There aren't going to be as many cells dying. And so that's going to let you put in a lot more electrodes, which means, you know, you're more likely to pick up the cells you're looking for um, and you could keep it in the brain for longer. So that I think is going to be a big advance. And one of the big problems with neurotech, particularly invasive neurotech, is getting over regulatory burdens to have that actually available to patients. There's typically a relatively small market as far as the medical community goes. And so there's not as much money to be made and a lot of regulatory burden and expensive R&D to get neurotech to the patients. And so if this is going to be a relatively big company backed by a pretty big name with some really innovative technology that could really help people, then that might be finally a way to get past some of these regulatory hurdles and get this really good new tech into the humans. So one of the ways I explain this is that in, in the past, I mean, if somebody gave you uh, a set of really difficult questions and your universe of knowledge happened to be the uh, a large library, it may take you 10 hours to find all the answers you're looking for on a certain day. Um, today, you could have that same set of questions and you can answer it probably within 10 minutes using using a keyboard, a screen, and, and that interface. So... The next iteration and going from 10 hours to 10 minutes is to get to the 10 second interface. Uh, is it, um, is it going to be possible for somebody in the future to, to sit down and you can ask them a question and we can just think our way to an answer? Um, and that, that's kind of the, the vision of Neuralink I'm, I'm imagining is that we somehow make this interface between our brain and the information world as seamless and as invisible as possible. Is, is that kind of what you're, you're thinking as well? So I think that there's, um, again, yes and no. Uh, so I think reading and writing from the brain, right, is kind of the language that some people use to describe this, right? And a lot of neuroscience right now is trying to read information from the brain. We're trying to decode what information is in what region at what times in order to better understand how the system is working. Writing is much more difficult because 
you need to understand what the code in the brain is in order to write it in properly. And so I'll answer the Neuralink part by analogy to another neurotech company called Kernel. They were a little bit earlier in this space, uh, but they were starting out trying to do the same thing. When they came to Berkeley to talk to the neuroscientists, their pitch, their kind of end goal was essentially, well, we know that the hippocampus is this very important region for memory. If you lose your hippocampus, you get this famous lesion patient HM who could form no new memories and couldn't remember anything for more than nine seconds. So if we know that the hippocampus is so important, uh, then let's try and read all of the inputs into the hippocampus and all of the outputs. If we understand the input-output relationship, then why can't we just replace the hippocampus with an artificial one? And, you know, why not just go a step farther and make you even better hippocampi? Well, that was their goal. And uh, the neuroscience community largely laughed. Um, that is, uh, you know, at this point, very much science fiction because we really don't understand how the hippocampus does the input-output transformation, much less trying to be able to replicate it in a piece of technology, much less try and get that integrated into the brain in a living human. So the way that the brain works in terms of memory and the mechanisms for encoding and retrieving that information are one of these neuroscience questions that's very much more difficult. But again, if we go back to something that's a little bit of a simpler code, just inputs and outputs for the sensory or the motor regions, those we have a better idea. Neuroscience has made more progress. And so you might be able to kind of insert some information in a more efficient or extract it in a more uh, efficient manner. Um, but again, that's kind of uh, just what you can see, touch, feel, smell, those kinds of things, rather than real information. And I suspect what you're talking about with, you know, oh, I just want to type into my neural interface keyboard, you'd probably be searching for some kind of semantic information, which again goes to the hippocampus and this much more complex code we don't understand. So is it actually necessary for us to understand in a great deal of detail the way that the hippocampus encodes this information? And I'm struggling to sort of put it into words, but I'm imagining you use Neuralink technology, for example, to map all the inputs and all the outputs and then treat the hippocampus as, as a black box where you don't really care so much what the transformations are like. You're not interested in creating an isomorphic set of transformations. Maybe you just train a deep learning system to take the same inputs and generate the same outputs, but more quickly. Mm -hmm. is, is that a plausible sort of thing? The trick with that, though, is that you still have to interface with the existing tissue, right? Uh, all the cortex that goes into the hippocampus. You have to be able to efficiently acquire the information that is being thrown into the hippocampus, get it into your black box. And you have to know exactly how the hippocampus sends information out to the output circuits. So even if you didn't need to understand the hippocampus itself, you have to understand how it relates to the input structures and the output structures, uh, which is still a very large neuroscience challenge. Sure. But, but wouldn't it just be a matter of recording the firing patterns? So, so the, the information going into it, so that, that's just a matter of cataloging the neurons that are interfacing with the hippocampus and firing into it. And then looking at the ones that are firing out of it is, am I, do I have that right? Uh, that's true, but uh, the key piece here is the physiology of how do you connect to those. So, you know, our electrical recordings from the brain are picking up sort of individual spikes, which would be an individual neuron sending one bit of information. Uh, but then you have to be able to output to the other neurons. And it turns out that it's not just spiking information. So if you look at an individual neuron, a lot of times you might look for that one spike and the way a neuron works is it has this big tree of what's called dendrites, which many other neurons are impinging on and sending in their spikes. But the dendrites are actually their own computational devices. And there's a really nice, interesting field of the analog computations that are going in and the summations of all of the inputs in these dendrites. And you need to get enough of those to sum in order for this neuron to decide that ah, okay, it's time for me to fire my one output spike. And so the computations that are going on in the dendrites, which is also where a lot of the plasticity is happening, the strengthening of connections between neurons. And so there are so many computations inside a single neuron 
that those are going to be uh, difficult to figure out. And you can imagine that, you know, this one neuron, how are you going to be able to affect all of the different synapses or contact points between neurons, get all of those analog computations down, and then get the correct outputs to all of the other neurons and all of those dendrites. And so the complication is much more uh, a larger scale problem than just this one neuron and its spikes or this group of neurons and its spikes. And you have this all this wetware, right, where you have all these different proteins and all these different transformations uh, so that it's really difficult to try and interface with biology. It also sounds like there's a huge difficulty in understanding how the representations work. And mm -hmm. I, I am sort of curious to go back to the Neuralink question of recording information happening in the brain and ideally stimulating a, a pattern of outputs that you want to see, which would correspond to better attention or what have you. So how is it that we know that those rep representations are consistent enough across people to engineer the output that we want to see? Yeah, and is it possible to make everybody we look at look like Jennifer Aniston? Let's <laughs> <laughs> hope oh, your wife you doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> right, yeah, let's go back to that visual prosthesis, which is uh, just going to stimulate the right neural inputs sure. for uh, that representation. <laughs> um, so I think, again, uh, we're talking about a relatively narrow set of representations in the brain right now, which are essentially semantic knowledge, which is hippocampal dependent. Um, you do have other forms of knowledge. Again, an easy one is like the motor domains that you have. Uh, you know, once you learn how to ride a bike, you don't forget. And that information is stored in the striatum, not the hippocampus. So I think that there are lots of other neural engineering challenges that are probably going to be more useful for something like Neuralink rather than inputs and outputs of conceptual knowledge. And that's because, as you say, we really don't understand the representational code of a concept in the brain that's very distributed. You know, the uh, one Jennifer Aniston neuron is probably just a little slice of the story, right? And so there might be a few other neurons involved. And then also uh, we know that over time, the hippocampus transmits the long-term storage of those concepts somewhere in the cortex. So I mentioned before that patient, famous patient HM, who had no hippocampi, both of them were taken out for an epilepsy surgery and then could not form new memories, could only hold things in mind for a few seconds. Patient still remembered everything from, well, most things from prior to the surgery. And that's because the memories were not stored in the hippocampus. The ones that had been around just long enough had already been brought out to the cortex and stored in a very distributed pattern across different brain regions, depending on the type of information. And so that suggests that it's not as simple as the one Jennifer Aniston neuron. There's a much more complex process of memory storage where it's initially dependent on the hippocampus to encode that information, but then the actual storage or the representation also involves this very distributed pattern in the cortex. And so that code is something that we really don't understand very well, particularly for abstract concepts and knowledge. Yeah. So you keep using this word code and I'm, I'm interested in what the state of the art is in trying to parse the encodings for these sorts of concepts. So presumably some effort has been made to understand the machine language of the brain, I guess, for lack of a better term. What's that like? Is, does that interface with your work at all? So I'm pretty distant from that. Um, and so maybe here it's also helpful to outline a little bit of uh, the field of neuroscience in terms of its organization. And one dimension common there is uh, the level of analysis, meaning the very top level would be sort of cognitive neuroscience where I am. And again, there you're dealing with entire brain regions, which have millions of neurons and trying to relate those to behaviors and complex thoughts. Uh, but then if you want to get more mechanistic, you go down a level to what might be called systems neuroscience. And that's looking at circuits of maybe a few hundred cells. And you can go down even a step farther to the cellular molecular level, where you might look within a single cell, so subcellular, and you want to look at, say, one synapse, which is where two neurons have contacted each other. That's where you have all these ion channels and neurotransmitters that are relaying the information between those two neurons. And so that's where a lot of the computation happens in the brain, because those synapses and how they're constructed are where a lot of knowledge is maintained. Because if you think about how a computer might store something, it would have connections between elements. And here, you know, the analogy would be a neuron is an element. 
and strengthening the connections for this pattern or this combination of neurons is held at those synapses with how strong is this synapse? How strong is when neuron A fires, how likely is it neuron B is also going to fire? And you'll see that change across development. We start out as a kid with many, many more connections than we need. And there's a big pruning stage where you get rid of a lot of synapses. Um, and then you get more efficient networks that are representing. But as you learn something, that's where the plasticity is happening. A certain concept represented by this network of cells, those synapses between those cells are gonna get stronger and stronger. And then when you get reactivating that network, you know, days, months, years later, that's when that network of synapses that were strengthened when that initial piece of information was encoded are gonna get reactivated. And because they're so strong, that network will come back online and you'll get back that piece of information that you encoded in the network. So is, is the thinking that a concept like justice or even just basic arithmetic, two plus two is equal to four, is, is the view that it's just stored as a consistent activation pattern across these different circuits? That, is it the kind of thing of you could it, describe mathematically? Yeah. So a lot of it is going to be in this distributed network of neurons and the strength of their specific connections. And also, uh, you know, you need to be able to inhibit some network. So you can imagine if you have a network that encodes uh, the concept of justice, you have a separate network that encodes peace. Those two things are pretty similar. And so you need to be able to have those things uh, close enough that you can relate them, but also when you recall one, you don't want to immediately recall the other one. And so they have to be distinct enough. And so this is referred to as uh, pattern separation. And so you need to be careful with how you encode these uh, patterns and how that plasticity is working. Um, and so that's it's very complicated sort of set of mechanisms that involve a lot of the biology building up these synapses and tearing them down and remodeling them constantly. So the, the question that comes to mind for me is that we've we've figured out how to sequence our genes and and how to um, kind of reverse engineer how we work genetically um, is wouldn't it be possible to do something similar to the human brain and and to kind of reverse engineer the human brain to figure out how and and, and I'm assuming that each of us works differently so um, mm -hmm. so that we would have some sort of a uh, a deconstruction process that's unique to each of us that problem is definitely you know the dream but the issue with uh, neuroscience is that it's so interdisciplinary uh, because it has these multiple levels at which you need to understand something uh, mm -hmm. again the sort of genetics are just the basis you know those are going to be some of the molecules that you need to have access to to build a circuit um, and, you know, we do know that some of those genes are going to be very causal. So there's a few genes that have been identified in psychiatry where if you have that gene, you're going to end up with this disorder like fragile X or Rett syndrome. But that's not enough in most cases, because then you have the going up different uh, individual cells, and then you have the combination of those cells into circuits. And then you have this top level of the different brain regions and large scale networks. And so understanding neuroscience or even a single circuit in the brain has much more levels of complexity and each one of these levels of analysis needs to be understood and you have to be able to relate those different levels of understanding to each other and so it's uh inherently an interdisciplinary and uh harder problem to solve to figure out how the genome is then being expressed and then how that is unfolding over time in a particular person's brain in order to understand one particular circuit or function. Okay. Now we're, we're making really good progress on being able to uh, use the, the human brain as an interface device for managing a prosthetic limb as an example. Um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through this whole idea of, of additional capabilities that we'll have with our brain over the, the coming decade or the, the next couple decades. Uh, are, are there some things that you think are like, like the Holy grail that's just hanging out there. That's the low hanging fruit that we'll be able to do this very soon. Well, um, the things that I'm actually thinking about, so I'm pretty late in my PhD and I'm considering where to go in a postdoc. 
And uh, part of what I want to do there is stay in this embraceive neurotechnology because I think that's where the promising, most promising opportunities are. And so the things that I'm thinking about are stimulators to help alleviate mostly dysfunction. I think uh, it's a little trickier to think about enhancing function, but uh, people are already using these kinds of things, not just for motor prosthetics um, or visual prosthetics or you know cochlear implant, but they're starting to try and investigate the cognitive functions. And so they're using things called deep brain stimulators, which are essentially a pacemaker that you drop into the brain and using those to uh, try and treat things like depression or OCD or uh, you know anxiety or chronic pain. And so uh, these are things where you might have one part of the brain that has uh, hopefully a relatively simple malfunction. So Parkinson's is one where the pathology of that neurological disorder is relatively well understood relative to something like Alzheimer's or something maybe a little more complicated like depression or schizophrenia. And because that's relatively well understood, we have this deep brain stimulator that we can drop in and try and treat the motor symptoms and alleviate those. And so I think uh, if you can slice off the right problems of neuroscience, the ones where we have enough understanding and the technology is able to address the mechanism that we've identified, those are going to be quite uh, useful applications. And so these neurological and psychiatric disorders, I think, are the next frontier, more so than, say, enhancing other versions of cognitive functions. Okay. I know one thing I've been looking for is a truth meter I can download in my brain so I, <laughs> so I can know exactly if the, the BS meter goes off. And <laughs> right. Ah, but it's not truth relative. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what you would look for there is just indications that a person believes themselves to be being deceitful. It's, it's not what is actually true. It's just, do you think this is true or are you clearly saying something that you think is not true? Right. And, uh, you know, if that person is really good at convincing themselves that this is their truth, then, hey, I guess they're not lying. <laughs> that, that's true. My dad always said, if you believe it, it's not a lie. That, that wasn't that wasn't great advice. So that <laughs> so that's actually a beautiful segue into the field of neuroethics. And neuroscience was the first half of what I wanted to talk about. Neuroethics was the second half. So I'm, you sent me some documents in preparation for this interview, but I'm still not really clear on what your role in neuroethics is. So is it just something you think about or read about, or are you doing, you know, are you competing for grants to write papers about it? So right now I'd say my involvement in neuroethics is pretty peripheral, but it's definitely something that I've come across in my career working with these patients. So I got into this, uh, trying to consent these patients to a neurosurgical procedure. And if I think about in the future, the studies that I might want to work with, uh, where we're going to potentially be modulating uh, parts of their mood, parts of their personality, the things that are going to be central to their identity, then understanding the implications of this treatment are going to be immense. And so uh, we already know that if you are going to stimulate somebody in Parkinson's disorder with this is now standard treatment for deep brain stimulation, there are some reports that certain people are going to become more impulsive that's potentially something you could consider a personality trait enough that your family or your spouse might notice those changes in you. And so if uh, you're going to sign up for this treatment for your Parkinson's to try and help your movement symptoms, you know, how much do they need to know about how that might also change their personality traits? Because again, we aren't totally certain how the brain is going to work and what the stim what the stimulation is actually going to do. And so uh, that, may starts to pose some very serious questions, you know, uh, for example, now people are using these stimulators to try and treat depression in clinical trials. And, uh, as an anecdote, I heard from a clinician that, uh, you try and, uh, talk to them about how, what their experience is when you're trying to treat their depression and it's working, right? So their mood is improving, but now the stimulator controls their mood to some degree and who gets control over the stimulator. Right. So the anecdote from this patient was that uh, essentially their family member knew that they had this stimulator and basically said something along the lines of, eh, you're kind of cranky today. I think you need a tune up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, who's, whose job is it to tune it up? Right. Is it the patient? Is it the clinician? Is it their community who has to deal with them? 
And so, you know, thinking about these uh, issues that are going to be coming up now and much more so in the future is mm. kind of what got me into the neuroethics of all this. Yeah, you talk about the tune-up as being a negative thing. I think it could be a positive, right? Well, there's there's no doubt that it could be, but I, I think he raises an interesting question because there's all these issues around what we learn from suffering or from depression. We've all experienced this where we had to grieve in order to get over something. But if I've got something in my brain and a loved one dies, doesn't it become pretty tempting to just turn that up pretty high yeah. and, and to not suffer through that? And then you've got to almost exercise this extra layer of autonomy and will to force yourself to go through these cathartic motion emotions as, as part of the process of grieving and healing. And so I, I think part of what makes neuroethics so fascinating is that it gets to the heart of everything that it is to be a human being. So things like free will, it, it begins to take on really interesting dimensions when you consider the possibility of just nudging somebody in a direction or making them a little angrier at a protest, for example, maybe if, if many of these people are, if, if let, let's say 50% of the people at a, at a protest are sporting some form of neural implant and you have it in your power to make them just a little bit more irascible, at what point do they stop mm -hmm. being responsible for their actions at some point, but it's really hard to delineate <laughs> that spectrum. Sure. And then what happens when uh, they get sued or go to court and they say, my stimulator made me do it. How would you know? Who's at fault? Yeah, I would think yeah, uh, like a prof difficult. professional football player, you could just dial him up a few notches to, to, exactly. to, to yeah, just intimidate the rest of the, the, the other team. Right. <laughs> so. um, and I think one of the key things to keep in mind here is we consider, you know, abstractly these psychiatric conditions or, you know, whatever problem you might have to be maladaptive. And you need to be very careful with that word because the person that has that issue might not consider it maladaptive. They might consider this is part of my identity. And so this is an issue that psychiatry has been dealing with for a long time. That consider themselves normal. It's part of their identity. Oh, did we skip? We, we lost sure. you there for a second. Uh, so okay. just, just pick up. That's fine. Yeah, I'm skipping just a bit here. Um, so... The key concept here that psychiatry has had to deal with is, you know, what do you count as maladaptive and at what point do you intervene, right? So someone that is somewhere on the autism spectrum might not consider themselves to have a disorder. They might be very happy with who they are, and that's not something that they want treated, and that's not something that they want considered a negative aspect of their personality or their identity. And the same thing is true, you know, you see that in deaf communities who are right. very adamant that they do not want a cochlear implant. Right. They love themselves the way they are. It's part of their identity. It's part of their community. It's part of who they are. And so just because you might consider that a deficit that you want to solve with a neuro implant, you can't assume that about somebody else because that's their own decision. And so a lot of times psychiatrists have been walking this thin line where, you know, if you're going to have harm to someone else or yourself, then that's usually considered grounds to intervene somehow. But otherwise, it should be up to the patient. If you're a little bit depressed and you're really bummed out about it and you want a stimulator, maybe you should be able to get it. But if this person is what you might consider depressed, but they don't mind that and that's part of who they are and they want to continue living like that, who are you to say they should get a stimulator? Yeah, so it gets into that whole topic of what constitutes normal. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a tough subject. Um, yeah, it definitely yeah, is. That's part of why neuroethics is so sticky is because you know, uh, well, you can draw some analogies to bioethics and the history of that developed in medicine and research. You know, it used to be that it, not so long ago, even the 50s, 60s, people were doing very unethical scientific and medical research. And there were some very famous examples that really spurred the community to implement some regulations some laws and to incorporate ethics into medicine and biomedical research. And that was a tough process to figure out, but now we at least have a much better state, if not perfect, certainly by no means perfect. So yeah. neuroethics is going to have to go through a similar growth process and try and figure out exactly how to implement these things. And I think it's going to be even harder. Medicine, you know, my body, my choice. There are certainly, you know, ethics associated with that. But when you start implementing this in things that are going to change a person's identity, who they are, their personality, and you have control over those things, it gets even more complicated. So 
as we're sort of wrapping up here, I wanted to ask you some big pic- picture questions about neuroscience and the field as a whole and where it's going. So first of all, what do you think are the major unanswered, un- unanswered questions in neuroscience? Again, I really think that it's linking the levels of explanation together. Um, you know, a lot of neuroscientists are going to be working on one level. They're going to work on that subcellular level of this gene changes how much expression of this particular chemical messenger and how that is going to change the connectivity of this cell to the next cell. But then there's whole other sets of researchers that say, okay, what does this circuit do? Or how does that link to behavior? And those are just tough questions. It takes so much effort to understand one of those levels. How are you going to relate them to each other? And so I think uh, it's becoming very much a team science game. Nobody has the expertise to do everything by themselves. And that involves a lot of communication, a lot of collaboration, and a lot of theory, planning out your experiments in order to be able to link those things together and get a more holistic understanding of how things work and how they relate to the things that we would colloquially refer to as psychology and concepts. So linking all those things together and, you know, the computational models to describe them, I think that's going to be a very big uh, sort of foray and field in the future. Okay, one last question. Um, Exactly how long before we get to an Iron Man costume that we can actually control like they do in the movies? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, depends on what features you want. If you want to have that robotic arm that just drinks your beer for you, we've got it. You know, you got to sign up for neurosurgery, but we've got that. Uh, If you want the sort of supervision, actually, you know, we've got some visual prosthetics. We're kind of working on it. Um, But yeah, the rocket launcher, maybe a little farther off. You know, targeting systems might be a little more difficult. (laughs) Got you. Well, this has been a fascinating. We could probably put a simulator in that is going to let you believe you're Iron Man. And and married to Jennifer uh, Aniston. You will forget all about Iron Man. Yeah. And that wouldn't violate any ethics whatsoever. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks very much, Colin, for this uh, fascinating conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Well, this is great. Thanks, yeah, Colin. Like appreciate it. All right. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>